0: Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Dear Muriel from our 2018 programme. The Divine Muriel Spark is one of Scotland's most revered writers, with legions of fans that include such luminaries as Ian Rankin, Alexander McCall Smith and First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. On the occasion of the 100-year anniversary of her death, literary editor and friend Alan Taylor delivers Appointment in Arezzo, an intimate, fond and funny memoir full of colour and indiscretion of one of the great novelists of the last century. Taylor is the founding editor of the Scottish Review of Books, and in this conversation he reveals his muriel with Michael Williams. The session is supported by Platinum patron Heartland Bank. We hope you enjoy listening.
1: I I, I should say that... um Back in the day, you remember that Glasgow uh, had a campaign called Glasgow's Miles Better, and, and, and this caused great consternation in Edinburgh because Edinburgh thought, well, Glasgow's Miles Better than what? <laughs> uh, and, but they had to come up with their own slogan, and eventually some wit in the, Gla- in the Edinburgh council chambers came up with Edinburgh's Slightly Superior. And <laughs> that sort of suggests the difference between Muriel Spark and Glasgow. Slightly
2: superior rather than miles better is an excellent distinction. Now, we're going to chat uh, for the better part of an hour. We would love you to join us in the conversation uh, Mm. as we go along. And where Alan's a big fan of heckling, it has to be said. He He would like you to tear down his assumptions about Muriel. But I wanted to start by saying that this was almost an invidious task to do this. Alan's book is wonderful, but the thing that happens when you open it and you start reading is you're desperate to be in the company of Muriel Spark. You're desperate. I don't know if, like me, I imagine there are many fans of her work in the room. Put your hand up if she's one of your favourite writers.
1: That's very nice.
2: Excellent. You know the nicest thing is the discovery that awaits the rest of you because to know Muriel Spark... uh, Is to adore her work She's an extraordinary singular wit She would have turned 100 this year Which is part of the occasion of this conversation And uh, in a previous interview Alan said uh, When talking about their friendship I'd say we're kind of simpatico We have shared backgrounds We're from the same part of the world We're red haired, small And we believe in revenge Yeah, (laughs) It's it's true All true It's a very good basis for a literary relationship Um, Maybe, if you would, take us back to Arezzo and that first meeting with Muriel herself.
1: Well, it it was about 1990, and um, uh, in those days I had this wonderful job of going around the world interviewing great writers, great writers, John Updike, Joseph Heller, Alice Munro, people of that ilk. And I had a very indulgent editor uh, who allowed me to do this. But I think he was getting fed up with the amount of money this was costing him. And he said to me one day, is there no Scottish writer that you would like to interview? And I said, well, I've long dreamed of interviewing Muriel Spark. And since the offices of the Scotsman were on the South Bridge of Edinburgh, he thought all I had to do was walk up to Brunsfield and interview Muriel Spark. He said, so where is she based? And I said, Tuscany. (laughs) Anyway, through various connections, um, I uh, managed to get a hold of her Fax number. She dealt in faxes. remember the wonderful days when this little piece of paper used to come through your machine and you didn't know what it was going to say. And so I wrote to her by fax and asked if she might permit to being interviewed. And almost by return, I got this very businesslike, very charming uh, fax back saying she would be happy to be interviewed. Um, I should come to this place called Arezzo in Tuscany, which was about 15 kilometers from her home. Uh, come around about six o'clock in the evening, stay at the hotel, hotel Continentale. I'll give you lots of names, so if you need to go to Arezzo at any particular time, I'll recommend one or two. Uh, and she said, I'll come with my friend Penelope Jardine at six o'clock. It'll be cooler then, and we can do the interview. So I turned up a day early. I was terrified of being late. Muro had quite a reputation. Uh, she'd been known to sort of issue, sort of, Verbal exocets at people, um, and so I had a certain fear of her. Um, and we arranged for a photographer to drive out from London, and sure enough, she turned up at six o'clock uh, with Penelope, uh, dressed in a, a sort of yellow dress with black spots. She looked like a bumblebee, and um. Uh, we did this interview in in, in RETSO and um, I very quickly realised, Michael, maybe this is a tactic I'll use with you too, is that um, if I asked her a question, she rejoined it by asking me a question that had nothing to do with the question I'd asked her. <laughs> so she would say things to me like, so um, where did you get your hair done? <laughs> uh, you know. And in those days, I wasn't the sort of dapper fellow I am now. Uh, And this sort of bemused me somewhat. And and I said, well, I actually get it done in in, in a place called Alfie's. It's just a barber shop next to the Scotsman newspaper. And she said, do you get it touched up? (laughs) And I said, no, I don't. I'm just trying to hang on to what I've got. I said, do you get your hair touched up? And she said, absolutely not. Well, she was 72 and had bright red hair. (laughs) So I realised that this was a mischievous person who I could get along with.
2: I have to say, getting to know her better, when you reflect on that, the avoiding questions by answering with questions, what was that? Did she not... Was she testing you? Was it
1: playing? I don't know. I think it was just the way she was. I think it was partly the the novelist's instinct to find out information. Um, Muriel was a great gatherer of information. Um, We could jump much further forward to about two years near her death, and... um, she was staying in a, a, a little town called Melrose in the Scottish Borders, where she was putting up before appearing at the Edinburgh Book Festival, and I was going down to see her, and I said, "How are you getting on?" She said, "Oh, it's great." And um, I had an aunt who had a little bookshop in in Melrose, and Muriel said she'd been to the bookshop and she'd bought a book, and she'd been reading this book all night. It had been she'd been turning the pages of this book all night. She said, "This is the book I should have had all my life. You know, a wonderful book." And I said, well, you know, tell me what the book is called and the author's name, and, and I'll mention it in the newspaper and perhaps this will increase sales of the book for this poor, hapless author. She said, well, it's by the Reader's Digest and it's called How to Do Absolutely Everything. <laughs> Muriel could do nothing. She, she couldn't sew a button on, she couldn't boil an egg. I never saw her boil a kettle, iron a shirt. Her mother had told her... Um, as a child, that if you don't learn to do something, nobody can possibly ask you to do it. <laughs> and, and nobody had taken this on board more than Muriel. Um, so um, uh, I, I guess she wanted to find out things. She always asked. She would, for example, her last novel, um, The Finishing School, uh, has uh, some teenagers at the heart of it. They're learning to write, do creative writing. And she wanted to know what was inside um, a typical teenager's bag. Well, when she met teenagers, she got them to empty their bags. And her papers are full of notes about what were in these teenagers' bags.
2: I have to say, of the surprises in your book, and there are many, her incapacity at basic life was one that came as a real shock because when you read her work, she exudes capability, Mm. kind of methodical and deliberate and everything else. But you tell a story about uh, her and her dear friend and companion Penny Penny. Um, And Penny's working very hard in the garden. Yes. And Muriel's
1: inside writing. Well, Penny, um, Penelope Jardine, is a remarkable woman. She's um, thankfully still with us. She's about 86, 87 now and lives in the heart of Tuscany in a a 14th century rectory with many rooms. Um, And this place needs constant upkeep. And uh, Muriel had just gone to live with her there. And one day, in the heat of the Tuscan sun, Muriel had spent the day writing while Penelope was outside clearing rocks from the garden and trying to build walls and stuff like that. She's a sculptor. And at five o'clock, Muriel opened the shutters of the Tuscan windows, leant out and said to Penelope, "Um, when you've finished playing around in the garden, why don't you come in and make me a cup of tea? (laughs) Uh, And at that point, Penelope thought, well, I'll throttle her, you know, it's... Uh, But she had all these kind of things like the two of them traveled thousands of miles. You know, they they would get into a car and travel 3,000 miles to see an altarpiece or a good painting or something like this. But if by six o'clock they hadn't reached their destination. And guess who was driving? It was Penelope, of course. And Muriel would go into the dashboard, bring out a miniature of whiskey, pour it to herself and, and and have a sip of the whiskey. She, because at six o'clock, what do you do? You have a whiskey. And, and and if you are still on the road, you still have a whiskey. But Penelope said, but I couldn't have a whiskey. <laughs> um, so yeah, she she had practical solutions for things and she knew how to do things in, in a sort of literary sense, uh, you know, she, she, she knew how to get out of quicksand or change a tyre, but she couldn't do it. Um, and I found this really endearing. I thought this was wonderful. She was, she was a sage giver of advice, Muriel. Um, you know, you want to lose weight, eat half of what's on your plate. Um, if in trouble, go to Paris. Uh, beware of men who b- bring you flowers all very good pieces of advice. It all works. You know, every time I feel slightly worried about what's going on, I think, book a flight to Paris.
2: <laughs> it's very sound advice, but don't get bought flowers by a Parisian man. They'd no.
1: She's... <laughs> well, she was famously bought flowers by the man who became her husband. She was ill in bed. She was 19 years old, and she would met this man who was uh, about 17 years her senior at a dance in Edinburgh. And he... Uh, heard she was ill. He, he brought flowers. Uh, he told her she was going to. He was going to Southern Rhodesia to take up a job. Muriel wanted to leave Edinburgh, and so she agreed. She agreed to be married to him. She, uh, she was very impetuous as well, and uh, she said she should have realised in hindsight from his initials that this wouldn't work. He was called Sydney Oswald Spark, S.O.S. Um, <laughs> And that if, if only she'd realised from his initials what she was signing up to. Um, but uh, so it was a disastrous marriage, but she got some very good copy out of it.
2: And, and she also got the name Spark, which she vastly preferred to the surname exactly. she'd begun with. That's yeah. not a
1: bad one. Exactly. People said to her, why, if it had been such a disastrous marriage, did you keep the name Spark? And she said, well, it seemed to fit me.
2: It absolutely did that. I'm mindful that I'm jumping around, and I want to jump around so much, but I want to take you back to her asking you in that first meeting – about your hair and whether it was touched up. Mm. Because a detail in your book that I think is particularly poignant is what she would ask for when she went to a hairdresser.
1: Yes, well, uh, and this is, again, quite good advice, actually. Um, Because, you know, when most of us go to the hairdresser, you basically said, well, it combs to that side or this side or, you know, apply some glue and keep what I've got One, Uh, Muriel's injunction to the hairdresser was, make me look different. Make me look different. So that friends will tell you this, and you'll see from her pictures, that she had this capacity, chameleon-like, to change appearance. Friends would be waiting for her at the airport, and she would walk past them. (laughs) She would look completely different. Her hair would be straight and curls and different styles. She would be dressing completely different. Um, And she applied this idea to writing novels. So that when she set out to write a new novel... She said to herself, make it look different, make it read different, so that her novels um, are all different, are all in some ways completely different. They're all unmistakably by Muriel Spark, but they are completely different. There is actually, if you think about it very hard, no writer anywhere like Muriel Spark. She has hundreds of thousands of admirers, but no one writes like her. And so this idea that you must make me look different, I I loved that idea. She would think, well, this is somebody who is constantly challenging herself.
2: I agree there's no one quite like her and she is kind of indefatigably herself. But it makes sense to me that a writer like, say, Graham Greene would admire and revere her work. Because like Spark, Greene, each book was clearly a distinct project. There was clearly an idea, a character, a moment, a global geopolitical phenomenon that Green wanted to unpick. And you get that same kind of thing as you go through Sparks' work, I think.
1: Yes, and um, she wrote very much of the moment. Um, She wrote a novel uh, called uh, The Abbess of Crewe, uh, which is set in a convent. Um, And uh, she wrote it. um, It's a satire on the Watergate affair. And she wrote it as the the affair was going on. So she had written that novel. She wrote a a wonderful book about um, the disappearance of Lord Lucan and the murder of his his nanny um, called Aiding and Abetting. Um, She wrote uh, a book called The Mandelbaum Gate, which was based on her experiences of attending the Eichmann trial. Um, So this was a a very political, very clued-up person. Uh, But her first um, prerogative as a writer was to give enjoyment. Um, that that people should love reading her books. All her books are are very funny to a certain degree, but they're political, they're philosophical, they're religious, and I think that's what Graham Greene responded to as well. Of of course, they were both Catholic converts. Uh, Graham Greene, when Muriel was hard up, um, used to send her uh, a sum of money from time to time, almost monthly, kind of little allowance, and then he would send her uh, a case of wine as he said, to take the chill off cold charity. Um, such a nice thing to do, isn't it? Um, you know, raises Graham Greene, in your estimation, even more than it might have been. Um, and Muriel always loved that, you know. Mm. Um, but she she came to novel writing relatively late. She was 39 when she wrote her first novel. Uh, but, when, but she... She suddenly found that this was incredibly easy. You know, all these writers at this festival who bang on about how difficult it is to write a, a novel. Muriel Spark would have laughed her head off at this. She wrote seven novels in six years. Four at least of them are classics. And she continued to keep this kind of production up. She said it was very easy for her to write the novels. That's not to say that the actual act wasn't difficult. But when she started to write, it just flowed. If you're in, well, I think it's finished now, but there it, have it, been obviously wonderful celebrations of the centenary of her in Edinburgh this year. And uh, there's a great exhibition at the National Library where you can see manuscript pages of her of her novels. The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie's front page just has a couple of crosses out. You know, she wasn't doing all this nonsense on a computer saying, I'll try this sentence, I'll try this sentence. She was writing like it was dictation. She wrote The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie in seven weeks. You know, it's pretty good. I must tell you the story. <laughs> um, recently, there was a sale of some of her effects, and um, Ian Rankin's wife, Ian was doing a, a PhD on Muriel uh, back in the day, um, and uh, his wife saw that what was purportedly the table uh, on which Muriel had written The Primus G. Brodie was up for sale. So Miranda bought this table for Ian, and I saw this table. And it's just like a little oval table like this, you know, it'd be hard put to put a piece of A4 on it. And I said, oh, no, I'm kind of sceptical about this, you know, whether that was a table. And I said, in any case, I said, there's nothing to indicate that that was Muriel Sparks' table. And he said, well, what do you suggest? I said, well, why don't you scratch your knife on it and put Muriel Spark or something like that? <laughs> it didn't seem to appeal to him. The, um, only Muriel
2: Spark would have created a character that's a nun clearly based on Henry Kissinger. Mm. Like Though there, there It's absolutely wonderful. There is something kind of remarkable and bizarre about that intellect. You mentioned not long before her life her doing Edinburgh Writers' Festival and there's a story in here about her responding to an audience member who's asking about the creative process yes. and how it works.
1: Well, you know, um, someone once said that the, the main character in, in Muriel's novels is God. Um, but uh, that god is Muriel really um, There was she was the omniscient author of omniscient authors and um, the, we I finally managed to persuade her to come to the Edinburgh Book Festival when she was 86 uh, and uh, she died two years later so this was a huge moment um, all Edinburgh had been waiting for, for her to come back she had been coming back but it had been incognito and so the public didn't know she was there And uh, she wanted to read from some new short story (laughs) uh, that she'd been working on. And I said, no, 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 you can't do that. You you can't read from some piece of work that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, And she said, well, what do you think I should read from? I said, "Oh, you have to read from the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And the public have to hear you say the words creme de la creme. They want to hear you say those words. Oh, she said, why would you want to do that? Anyway, she did it. And um, then it was a question and answer session. And a young woman put her hand up and asked Muriel if at any time had a character, a minor character in a novel she was writing, sort of grown in the telling and sort of taken over the novel. Muriel said, I've heard of writers to whom that happens. (laughs) How? (laughs) I'm writing the novel. (laughs) How could that happen? A character is a fictional creation. (laughs) It's part of the nonsense that's talked about how people write novels. You know, they don't come out of nowhere. They come out of your head. And Muriel was, you know, she wasn't a control freak. She was just the person writing the novel.
2: It was important to her that her readers were entertained. Was she entertained? Like, that suggests that that question of control in approaching it, she was deliberate and she knew what she was doing. But did she, I mean, as you got to know her and see her when she's in the thrall of writing a new book, was she surprising herself? Well,
1: I, I think she was always aiming high. She, she had an idea of what she wanted to achieve so that people would be perhaps surprised to know what she thought was her best novel, which was the driver's seat. It wasn't mm-hmm. the Prime Minister Jim Brodie or the Girls of Slender Means or a Tent*. It was, it was the driver's seat. And so she had in her mind what she wanted to achieve. And then she said she, she did the research. She did a considerable amount of research we can talk, perhaps, about her papers in a, in a, in a wee while. Uh, she would do a considerable amount of research. But then, she said, like a cat waiting to pounce on a mouse, she would pounce. And when she pounced, she wrote. And she wrote pretty steadily, pretty fast. In general, eight, ten weeks to write a novel. Some novels gave her trouble, um, Another interesting thing to say about her because she had, as I said earlier, practical solutions to difficult problems. So, that if she had a difficulty with a novel, she used to check herself into a hospital. Um, there was a hospital in Rome run by nuns who didn't like ill people. And uh, <laughs> Muriel found that if she was in this hospital, nobody disturbed her, it was perfect. Um, and uh, so she, she, she. She was the kind of person who might laugh at what she was writing. Um, She was always listening. She was always taking down... Absurd lines that people said. Um, you know, I, if you go to Italy, you'll find you know sh- shops are given English names that are completely meaningless in English. They're just stupid names. You know, like you know they'll be called something like the Zipper or something like that. The, the, and it will be nothing to do with a tailor shop. It will be a grocer's, and you think, like, what well, has got that to do? Um, so she would take all these kind of things down, and they, they might find their way into her novels. Uh, you've touched on it a bit, but in
2: in Lots of accounts or lots of understandings of her life and her work. Her Catholicism mm-hmm. is something that various biographers think at varying degrees of
1: importance. You don't, for the most part, and I'm interested in that. Well, I think, I think it's very difficult to understand somebody's religious beliefs. Um, you know, that uh, in the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, uh, Miss Jean Brodie, every Sunday, uh, attends a, a church of a different um, denomination. She's like church sampling. She doesn't go to one church, she goes to another church. And I think that although Muriel's father was uh, Jewish and her mother was Anglican, I think Muriel was a bit like Jean Brodie in that respect. She sort of liked to sample religions until she found one that was kind of closest or most sympathetic to what she believed. And the one she found most sympathetic to, to her own beliefs was Catholicism. Um, she'd read Cardinal Newman's autobiography and she'd been persuaded by his arguments about his conversion to Catholicism. Um, but that didn't mean to say she was a completely card-carrying um Catholic. Um, Sandy McCall Smith, or is it Richard Holloway in their introduction to one of her books that we're republishing, called her a uh, cafeteria Catholic. And I think that's kind of right. Um, you know, she would have thought things like um, uh, celibate priests who was just daft. Mm. Um, uh, she would have been um, perhaps pro-abortion. She um, did say if you're
2: going to do something, do it thoroughly. So if you're going to be a Christian, you may as well be a Catholic.
1: Well, yes. And she, <laughs> she, she well, as I say, I mean, we, we would go and visit churches very often, but the first thing she'd go and have a look at was the shop. Um, uh, uh, she, 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 you know, she, she wasn't, uh, she, she, she had a light view of uh, religion. She took it seriously, um, that uh, what we believed in mattered. Uh, you know uh, you know her novel Memento Mori, uh, which is uh, the fourth of her novels, uh, where somebody phones up these elderly people and says, rather spookily, remember you must die. Uh, yeah, it's a wonderful line. I mean, Muriel will have heard that somewhere, remember you must die. And depending on what the recipient's religion is, they're either spooked or saying, oh, it's okay, I know I'm going to die, and you know I'm going to go and, uh, you know, into heaven and everything's going to be fine. If you believe that, everything's fine. But if you don't believe that, you are very worried because somebody might be coming for you. But um, she, she, she herself was a believer, and she believed, I think, in, in an afterlife. But she, she, you know, if, I think in one of her essays, she was asked, um, uh, would you rather go to heaven or hell? And Muriel said, well, on balance, probably hell. She said, because, you know, I would hate to go to heaven and be stuck with Billy Graham. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, he's like, yeah, well, you can, you, you can understand it. It depends who you meet, doesn't it? <laughs> um,
2: she did. Her conversion to Catholicism, though, was almost immediately before her first book. Yes. Was there a link, do you think, between her creativity and her... Faith such as it was? Without a
1: doubt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, her. she was on the verge of a breakdown. She, she was um, very poor uh, in general. She was having problems with her weight, so she was taking pills to uh, diet with. Um, she met a priest who uh, was a very good counsellor. Um, I think she'd read Cardinal Newman. Uh, all of these things sort of added up. And I think she wanted to find something to believe in that would sort of position herself in the world and then position herself as a writer. And so then to have this idea of, uh, as a Catholic, where, uh, if, as I understand it, um, you, know, you have God, you have a priest, and then you have your readers. So, so somewhere in that sort of scheme of things with Muriel, we Presbyterians talk directly to God. I used to say this to her. I said, you could be in touch with God, no trouble at all, if you're a Presbyterian. You know, you just phone him up. Um, but she would go through this intercession. And that kind of uh, was almost like a metaphor for, uh, for a writer. And so that her writing, what I mean by that is that then her writing, just with the very fluency of it, it, was almost as if somebody was dictating it to her. Almost as if somebody says, right, here's the novel, Muriel. All you have to do now is take it down. Mm-hmm. I don't know what she would have made of that theory. I sometimes say things and I think, God, imagine if I go to heaven and Muriel's waiting at the gates (laughs) saying, you know, the things you've said about me is just (laughs) terrible.
2: She – I mean, that's that's funny to me because she was a meticulous protector of her own story. And so to have in you a friend who she made when you Mm. were there to interview her, to Mm. tell her story – must have. You must have been held to
1: a higher standard early on, maybe. I'm a nice person. Uh, <laughs> the, the, she, she she valued loyalty, and uh, so do I. And um, I, I think you know you should never uh, backstab people or say unkind things about people who you're friends with or um, you, you, you're going to meet on a regular basis. And uh, perhaps you should explain that after I did the interview and wrote the piece up. Uh, About a week later, I got this long letter from Penelope and Muriel saying, you know, it had been a pleasure to meet me. Um, Penelope called it, she said it was as if blood had been talking to blood. Penelope has that wonderful way of saying these things. And they said, um, would I, with my wife and two children, like to come and look after the house in Tuscany for a month the following summer? Well, why not i mean i hadn't really planned anything i think we were probably going to scarborough or somewhere like that you know and um so we went and uh looked after the house for a month and um you know it, it developed from there uh, i would see her four or five times a year uh, we exchanged uh hundreds of uh letters um i made tv programs about her radio things all the rest of it I'd go Went with her to New York for a couple of weeks, to Prague, London. So I saw a lot of her. Um, and I, 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 she was 72 at the time when I met her, and I, and I was 38. And um, you, I know you can't believe that looking at me now, but the, 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 uh, the thing was to go out with her, to go on a joint with her, to go for dinner with her, was extraordinarily exciting. You know, it was it, you had a real frisson that something would happen. That, that there was never going to be a dull evening in the company of Muriel Spark. She used to say, uh, she loves colour. Uh, she used to say, why make a dull day even duller? Wear something colourful, you know? Um, she had the great maxims like that, you know? And I like people who wear colourful things now. I think, you know, life is too dull to wear all these greys and blacks and stuff like that. Wear colour. Uh, and she herself was like that, um, you just got heckled by someone pointing out you're not in a very colourful outfit. I had a green shirt yesterday. I was stuck, first off. Yeah, yeah you've
2: made a huge mistake yeah. there. You you yeah. lay yourself bare for that
1: criticism. Uh, it was inevitable. Um, but no, she would... Well, I think actually I bought this shirt with her. Went there. I was in New York and uh, she said to me one day, uh, well, we, 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 we the New Yorker magazine who had invited... Her and therefore me, um, put us up in a very nice hotel, gave us a chauffeur 24 seven, and gave Muriel uh, tons of money that you couldn 't possibly spend. You know it was just impossible, and she just spent um, the mornings in bed while I swanned around New York with this chauffeur, and um, I had bought some shirts one day with the chauffeur, and Muriel said, "What are you doing this afternoon?" I said, "Well, I need to go to this Chinese seamstress to get the shirts. the sleeve's taken up." Muriel said, I have to see this. <laughs> and so she would come and sit there laughing her head off, watching me getting sleeves taken up, you know, because she'd never seen this done before. Or I, I, one day I took her to an Italian restaurant in Little Italy, and as we walked through the door, she said, what are we doing here? I said, well, I thought we'd have lunch. She said, where do I live? I said, oh, yeah, Italy. Of course. <laughs> you would never want to eat in an Italian restaurant, you want Indian restaurant, anything other than an Italian restaurant. Um, you know, we one day she said, um, there's a chap coming to interview me. Would you please sort of stick around? And I said, well, that's not very good. You know, interviewers don't like somebody else sitting in the room while they're asking questions. I said, but I'll, I'll be here to meet him and then I'll go and say, I said, who is it that's coming to interview? She said, somebody called Paul Theroux. <laughs> and I said, well, I went away. I came back. I said, "How was the interview?" She said, "It couldn't have gone better." She said, "He talked about himself the whole time. (laughs) It was wonderful. (laughs) You know, she was just priceless. Come out with these things. Uh, Often her um, witticisms don't sort of work just in isolation. They need sort of a a build up. You know, Um, there was a great uh, Australian artist. I don't know if you know him." a very ignorant audience if you don't, but never mind, She, uh, she called Geoffrey Smart. who um, mm-hmm. paints huge, wonderful um, canvases of um, gas stations and um, oil containers and stuff like that. Brilliant artist, Geoffrey. And Geoffrey lived nearby Muriel in Tuscany. They were great friends. And Geoffrey uh, was a great admirer of Muriel's work. And I remember sitting there one night at dinner and Geoffrey said to Muriel, um, you know, I've been reading the work of Aldous Huxley, Muriel, you know, who wrote Brave New World, et cetera. And Muriel you know, said, oh, that's very interesting. And Geoffrey said, he was a great admirer of yours, wasn't he, Muriel? It's just this horrible pause. And Muriel said, why wouldn't he be? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, uh, things, Scots are not supposed to be like that.
2: What does it mean to be Scottish by
1: formation? Well hmm well she first used that phrase to me when I we started a short story competition and I was wondering about how you know what would be the qualifications of the people who could um, enter it and she said well (laughs) they should be Scottish by formation (laughs) and and I said what does that mean she said well if they feel Scottish they are Scottish (laughs) so if they if they live here or if they're abroad or you know it doesn't matter what race they are or whatever if they feel Scottish they're Scottish." And uh, the Sun newspaper, you know, the tabloid with the page three girls, um, rang me to say, you know, what is this Scottish bifurcation? Is this some kind of racist thing or whatever? I tried to explain it to them, but they never printed anything. It was way too complicated for them to cope with. How important was her Scottishness to her, given that she
2: left and she saw exile as being what Edinburgh had given her, that she was always going to be Mm. an exile? Was she still inextricably Scottish?
1: Yes, she was. Um, she said that she left Edinburgh when she was 18, 19, and she said that um, at that point Edinburgh was a uh, a place where she couldn't hope to be understood. I think she meant as an artist, actually. Um, remember, that would be, oh, um, I don't know what that would be, 1935, 1936, thereabouts, Um And so she moved, she became then what she called a constitutional exile. And so she moved from Edinburgh to southern Rhodesia, to London, to New York, to Rome, and then eventually to Tuscany. So she was always kind of on the move. And she always moved when she felt that forces were oppressing her and that she was finding it difficult to write and and people were taking up her precious time. But, um, you know, she was asked at that final appearance in Edinburgh, uh, a similar question, you know, how Scottish are you? What you got she said, This is my home. Uh, no matter where I've been, uh Scotland is my home. She said, in fact, Edinburgh is my home. She said, In fact, Morningside is my home. Um and uh she spoke with a Scottish intonation. Um, you know, she spoke a very <laughs> formal Italian <laughs> It was like being taught Italian to listen to. She, she, un, she enunciated in the way that Miss Jean Brody would have enunciated creme de la creme. So uh, it, it wasn't you know the sort of fluent, flamboyant Italian that you get. But, oh no, she was totally, utterly Scottish. And you can see it in her way of thinking, her unsentimentality, her sense of humour, the construction of her sentences. It's all there. It's all there. Um, and there's something tartan, in in, in in every novel she wrote. Mm.
2: In about five minutes, you're going to get a chance to join us. There are fixed microphones that you need to make your way to at the back, so I mention it now so that you can take your time getting there. Um, but I, you said right back at the start when you talked about going to meet her at Arezzo, you talked about being intimidated by her reputation. And I'm curious, you've been writing about, talking about hmm. Spark her work, The Woman, for 30 years now. Hmm. How is she misunderstood? How, how is it your job to put the record straight?
1: Well, I, I could talk about the life, but it's perhaps easier um, or simpler to talk about the work. That, um, Like a lot of people who've written a truly great book that is, um, has phenomenal popular appeal, The Prime Minister Mr. Brody, and there's a tendency for people to forget the other books. Um uh, you know she wasn 't ungrateful to the prime Minister Jean Brodie, and it is a piece of genius there 's no doubt about it, but she wrote other books that were as good, if not better um, and uh, part of what my objective is is to get people to read these other books um there 's also a tendency to think that because the books are slim they 're slight in fact. They are quite the opposite. Um, her books have a depth of thinking that goes way beyond much uh, fatter and much more purportedly serious books. Uh, she just had a way of of writing about very serious things in a in a in a, in a very light manner. Um, you know, she one of her favourite phrases was, "And I go on my way rejoicing." She mentions it several times. It's that sort of. Um, joie de vivre that lies through all her books that you think, you know, this is somebody constantly trying to figure out why, why are we on this planet and how are we supposed to behave? These were the kind of questions she was asking herself all the time and doing it through her fiction. Um, and, and so, you know, my kind of cause is to say, well, look, here's, you know, never mind what else she wrote, and she wrote a considerable amount of other stuff. She wrote 21 novels other than The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And I can tell you, you shouldn't bother reading any other books this year or next year. Just read your way through these books, and you will profit immeasurably. If you're a, 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 an aspiring writer, read them and weep, because there are no uh, grammatical errors, Uh, they uh, have the sort of cadence of poetry but couched in prose, they tell a brilliant story unexpectedly and always originally Um, and they're always a challenge. They're enjoyable but they may be enjoyable because they're an intellectual challenge, not because they're a laugh out loud challenge. Um, So I can't think of any sort of better recommendation really than to say that if you read your way through the corpus of Muriel Spark's work, you know you will immeasurably profit. Because to me, and I would argue this quite ferociously with anyone, that she was the best English writer in the English language of the 50 years from about 1950 to, to her death in 2006. I don't think there's anybody who holds a candle to her. And, you know, I've read a lot, I'm afraid.
2: I've read a lot, I'm afraid, could be the theme for the festival. Um,
1: uh, Well, Michael was talking about, he recently read uh, Symposium. And uh, Symposium was the novel that uh, she'd written uh, that I went out to interview her about. And um, it was her 19th novel. And so we talked a little about Symposium. And it features a character called Magnus and Magnus is a madman uh, and uh, he gets out at weekends, he's in Perthshire and he gets out at weekends and advises the family on how they should conduct their affairs. And Muriel said to me, well, what do you make of this? What do you make of Magnus? And what do you make of the novel? I said, I think it's a wonderful novel. I, I do think it's a wonderful novel. It's brilliant, funny, witty, profound, etc." I said, but I'm a bit sceptical about this, of Magnus getting out of what Muriel called a loony bin. She wasn't very PC. She gets out of a, a loony bin to advise the family on how to conduct their affairs. And she said, not in Perthshire, it's unusual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, if you know anything about Perthshire, there's all there's people from Perthshire. There, there, there's somebody got out of a loony bin and come to the festival.
2: That is ninety percent of a festival audience. Just quite <laughs> yes. uh, sorry, I, sh- I shouldn't have said that before. I'm asking them to go to the microphone. Yeah. That's uh, the house lights are going to come up a bit so that we can see you more clearly. If you make your way to the microphone, it means your fellow audience members will hear you, uh, which means there's a good reason not to. Give a long speech, but actually, just to ask a question. Um, but until you do, I'm going to keep. Uh,
1: we're going to keep talking no. up here.
2: I, did becoming her friend change your reading of her work?
1: Um, yes, um, because I, you know I read it very carefully. You know, and I, I was going to be in her company a lot of the time, and I helped her research a couple of books, um, partly her autobiography *Curriculum Vitae* and her final novel *Finishing School*. Um, it, it, it sort of changed my view of her books, I guess, but it sort of changed my view of myself. Um, you know, I, I could I could just as easily have called this book um, How Muriel Spark Changed My Life, because Muriel Spark did change my life, because although I had interviewed all these wonderful writers, uh, here was, a, a, you know, I could kind of figure out how John Updike and Gore Vidal and John Irving and people like that did what they did. I, I can't figure out how Muriel Spark did it. She, you you you'd be astonished the the play that she has on things, and um, so I suddenly realised that here here was somebody a, a bit a bar or two higher than these these guys who was a mystery to me, Um and yet she was in front of me. You quote Penelope Jardine
2: after she died, saying that she felt like. Even though she was as uh-huh. close to Muriel as anyone, she felt like she didn't always completely know her.
1: Uh, sometimes I felt I never knew her. She said, yeah. um, "Because writers go off into different compartments; the, the 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 their mind is elsewhere. You can be with them, but they're away somewhere else." And she was like that um, a lot of the time. But uh, I, I mean, uh, she had a profound effect on on my life and um, about how you be a writer and how s- seriously you take it, and 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 really. What is fiction what 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 is fiction what 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 are people trying to do when they write a novel or a short story are they just trying to make money uh, you know like detective writers are <laughs> or are they trying to sort of make us see the world differently um you know and and she was trying to make the us see the world differently she said you know when I once asked her and she wrote a wonderful Letter back to me. I, you know, I said, "What is your achievement?" She said, "You know, I think I've opened doors and windows on the mind." Don't you think that is a big, big claim? You know, I've opened, I've also tried to reinvent the novel to uh, show how, you know, what its capabilities are. Trust me, there are not many people out there trying to, you know, expand the boundaries of what a novel is. Pretty soon, the novel is going to die because nobody is expanding the boundaries of it anymore.
2: I have a question back here. Sorry. Um, I think uh-huh. out there there is a book called The Collected Short Stories of Muriel Spark. Yes. You haven't mentioned them. So did, could you just tell us a bit about, did she write short stories and then write a novel, or did she write a novel and write short? Could you just
1: yes. talk about short stories a little bit, please? Well, she's a fantastic short story writer, um, and um, you know, her collected stories have uh, some of the classics of the genre. She was particularly brilliant at writing ghost stories. Uh, There's a fabulous story in that collection called The Portobello Road, which will chill you to the bone. But um, Muriel, became a. she first of all regarded herself as a poet, and that's what she set out to be. However, in 1952, when she was very hard up, the Observer newspaper announced a competition, a short story writing competition, and put up a pretty good prize. It was something like £250 at the time. 3,000 people entered that competition. Muriel won it. Uh, and she won it with a short story called The Seraph and the Zambezi. And uh, if you ask Muriel, what was that story about? By the way, try reading that story now. It's a very ex- early example of magical realism. Um, she would say, well, it's about an angel in the, r- the Zambezi River. <laughs> um, so uh, she, her short stories are, are a bit different from her novels. Um, Because she knew the difference between a short story and a novel. You had to contain all this in a very short space, uh, uh, a relatively few number of words. However, after she won that short story and it caused great controversy at the time, you know, other more established writers say, how dare this person who's never written a short story before in their life win this amazing competition? And I was... I came across some letters in the National Library of Scotland, among Muriel's papers, uh, to the income tax. And she was trying to explain to the income tax man that she shouldn't pay income tax on this prize money because she wasn't a short story writer. (laughs) Um, She had written one short story. Uh, She was really a poet. And she had no intention of writing any more short stories. And please do not tax me. Um, I can tell you, I tried that last year with the income tax doesn't work. Uh, but she always had a short story on the go, and uh, many of them have a kind of uh, otherworldly feel, like a ghost story, or tell you something about her. There's a very good story of hers, um, which harks back to her time in South southern Rhodesia, called Bang Bang, You're Dead. And that's uh, based on the fact that her husband, S.O.S., was uh, a bit loopy and uh, was dangerous and um, might have shot her and her son.
2: Thank you. Can I just say in this country, literary prizes are tax free? Are they? Yes. Well, we, should, we should be very proud of it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, for so a long
2: time, all literary prizes and other art, arts prizes are tax free and we should celebrate that. Anyhow, thank you very much. Thank you, yeah. Very rarely is a rejoinder tax related, so yes, I'm going to uh, take uh, that. <laughs> Generally, I shut it down for a second question, but text related is fine. Poetry stayed important to her, didn't it?
1: Yes, it did, and she um, she always said she had a poem on the go. Uh, her poems are collected in a quite a slim volume called "All the Poems of Muriel Spark," and um, uh, people uh, have various views about her poetry. Uh, some uh, are not so keen. I, I rather like it. There's, there are certain poems that are narrative poems. Um, a rather beautiful, lovely poem called Going Up to Sotheby's about someone selling uh, their father's manuscripts and pages. And then there are, uh, coming back to what you said at the beginning, Michael, there are some wonderful revenge poems, you know, like somebody behaved badly at a dinner party. And, you know, Muriel just lanced them with a poem. It's wonderful, you know. She did, I mean, you say that in her letters and things. She
2: did use writing as a way of exacting revenge.
1: Uh, uh Aha, and um, I think a lot of writers do, but um, I should explain that um, from 1950, really, until her death in 2006, she kept every scrap of paper that came her way. Every scrap. Try it for a week. Um, You know, bus tickets, restaurant receipts, bills, letters, anything. She kept it. Everything. Everything. And so there's this amazing archive in, in Edinburgh. Um, and so you can sort of track her, her movements uh, throughout life. It, it is absolutely wonderful. And so th- this was born of a sort of paranoia of her being able to sort of refute uh, biographers who said she'd been in this particular place at a particular time. And she said, no, 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 I wasn't actually. You'll see I was there, you know, that's what I was doing, you know. Um, and we've discovered all sorts of interesting things. Um, I think I veered off. Whatever your question was. No,
2: no, no. It, it, I, I wanted to get to the archive and the resource. So it's a good. Um, it was using writing for revenge was our starting point. Uh huh.
1: Um, well, she, <laughs> like she, she would um, write to um, her, her publishers, and uh, like her publishers, for example, would send her the blurb for a book. And if Muriel didn't like it, it was. I don't know what it was like to get one of these letters, but it it would basically start, I've just received your proposed blurb for my book. I have no idea why you are my publisher. (laughs) Um, You clearly haven't a clue what I'm doing or what I'm about or what my intention is or whatever. I think we should just draw this whole relationship to a close. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, uh, uh, Her her letters um, to her son, uh, who she fell out with, were were what... um, her official biographer called sometimes verbal electrocutions. Uh, um, they are she, extraordinarily excoriating. Yeah, they are fantastic, and and um, she, you know, she she could be extremely tart when when she wanted to be, um, because she had this great facility. You know, she she had a wonderful wit. Um, you know, this, this there's a very famous story of of Muriel which she tells in her. Um, autobiography, Curriculum Vitae. Uh, in the 1940s, she uh, worked at the Poetry Society in London. And, and contrary to public um, perception, poets are really vipers. You know, they're not very nice people at all, you know. And, and Muriel fell out with all these uh, so-called poets, people who you know wore cravats and pretended to be poets. And, and uh, one of the persons she fell out with at the Poetry Society in London was uh, Mary Stopes. Uh, coincidentally, he was also from Edinburgh. And um, Muriel said she always felt there was a pity that Mary Stopes' mother hadn't invented contraception. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you know, that's pretty wounding, isn't it? You know?
2: yeah. There is You know, some precision there.
1: Yes. It's, um... Just, that's it, you know. And um, the former lover who stole her papers, she immortalised him. In, uh, he was called Derek Stanford. And poor Derek Stanford um, uh, turns up in, in her wonderful novel, A Far Cry from Kensington. There's a chap called Hector Bartlett, who, who she calls a pisseur de copie. In other words, you know, a urinator of bad journalistic copy. And everybody knows who he is. It's terrible. You know, you would not want that on your headstone, pisseur de copie.
2: Um, you touch, oh, sorry, is that a sorry, question here? Please, yes.
1: Very rude. Can I suggest, as I ask this question, since I'm now the fourth man in the room to be talking about Muriel Spark, maybe uh, someone might come to the other microphone to restore the gender balance a little bit. Excellent. I I Um, was
2: going to throw to a woman, sir, but you've you've failed me.
1: Can can you talk a little bit more about her relationship with Graham Greene, both converts to Catholicism, both living for a significant amount of time in Italy, the home of Catholicism, um, and... um, I don't know if you're aware of Shirley Hazard's wonderful book, Yes, uh, Capri, and Capri, yes. which, which you all, you're the parallel to her, sort of yes. the, 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 the person who uh, is drawn to this great writer in in self-imposed exile in Italy. Yeah, well, I have read Shirley Hazard's book, um, uh, which is a very good book about her um, relationship with Green and Capri. Um, well, I think the thing to say is that although she knew Graham Green, they weren't sort of, you know buddies who met every Friday night. Um, I'm sure they met on a few occasions, uh, but it was mainly um, that he learned that she was in difficulties and he decided that he had money he could help her. And so it was an act of charity and the wine was the take the chill of coal charity. Uh, What they did do, though, was they swap books. Uh, So when each had a new book out, they sent each other a copy of that book. And and the letters in the National Library, for example, give you Graham Greene's assessment of her books. Um, And uh, like Evelyn Waugh, uh, Graham Greene thought, uh, by and large to the end, that her best book was Memento Mori, um, that uh, he thought it was as as perfect as a novel could be. Um, But uh, uh, Muriel had great fondness for Graham Greene for obvious reasons. She liked his work an awful lot. Uh, She had fantastic sympathy for him. But I don't think that the relationship really went much beyond that. And his Catholicism was very different, I think, from hers. Um, uh, She had a... uh, I think hers was much more Italian, you know. It was much more of a sort of joyful Catholicism in a way. You know, if you go, as I have, to a Catholic church in Italy, it's not like being a Catholic church anywhere else. They, people come and go, you know, they leave halfway through the sermon or whatever and come back again having had a coffee outside. <laughs> you know, it's all pretty relaxed. Um, there's another great story uh, I could tell you about Muriel and um, Catholicism and churches. Um, she was a great one for designer dresses jewellery and all that kind of stuff and uh, she used to give her cast-off designer dresses of which there were a few in the National Library exhibition uh, to the local nuns who wore them under their habits <laughs> and uh, the Muriel had two two huge dogs really hunting dogs M- Mungo and Al- Algernon and and these dogs were released at five o'clock of an evening into the Tuscan countryside and so these nuns would be walking up the white road past Muriel's house. They'd catch the scent of Muriel's perfume in the dresses and <laughs> riot race after these nuns who were terrified at their wits. So there they are with Dior and dresses underneath their habits with these dogs leaping up on them. Had they mauled one of the nuns to death, it would been a great Muriel spark death. Mungo and Algernon. Yeah, yeah. It's just too good for words. It's, yes, it's too good. Yeah.
2: I've got to ask, and it's, it's a terrible question to ask, but do you have a personal favourite amongst her novels?
1: Well, I love Loitering with Intent, um, which is uh, it's a wonderful novel. So it's, it's not that funny a title. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, it's what uh, Joseph Cannon, who's written the introduction, calls uh, A Valentine to the Art of Writing Fiction. Yeah. And it's a wonderful book. Uh, you, you, you know, you just sort of immerse yourself in the London period uh, in this woman who is um, is, is becoming a writer. Uh, and it's really about Muriel becoming a writer.
2: You mentioned... Oh, is this a question? There's, there there, must, be, sorry, a, there, there, there must be some
1: no, no. gender balancing happening. I don't know what's no, going on. There no, is no. a... Here we go. Or leaving. For the
2: While you do the walk so that we're not all scrutinising you, I'm just going to ask you touched on her falling out with her son, which strikes me as a tremendously sad kind of episode in her life, but partly motivated by her passion for truth and facts.
1: Well, her son insisted that she, to be brief, uh, that she was um, wholly Jewish. Well, she was half-Jewish. She, she called herself a Gentile Jewess. And her son said, no, 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 you're, you're wholly Jewish, and I've done all this research. And she very gently said, well, it's good you're doing all this research. I don't really care about all those kind of things, but, you know, these are the facts. So that's it. He didn't take the hint, and they fell out. And they really fell out very badly, extremely badly. It was, ex- it was extraordinarily sad um, for both of them, really. Yeah.
0: My question is a bit lightweight, but did Muriel enjoy the film of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie?
1: Well, that's not lightweight at all, actually. Um, she was very grateful to the money that the Prime Minister Jean Brody... Um, she used to say, though, it's somewhat regrettable that some people out there seem to think that Maggie Smith wrote the Prime of Brody, <laughs> not me. Um, she, she felt that, um, uh, that uh, it, it had sort of inaccurately portrayed Edinburgh as, because it made it look too colourful. Remember, the novel is set in 1930, um, and so the film made it look... Um, I don't think she really bothered about these kind of things. She called the novel eventually her milch cow, and one of the reasons it was so successful and such a, a money spinner was thanks to uh, Maggie Smith's portrayal as, uh, as Jean Brodie. She won an Oscar for it. Um, milch cow is a hardy
2: line, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, from Tess. yeah. Um, So, yes, uh, she's got a very interesting relationship with films and and stuff like that. Um, Her movie, uh, her novel, uh, The Driver's Seat, was made into a a movie called Identicate. You can actually see it on the internet. And um, it starred Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, I remember once asking Muriel what she thought of Elizabeth Taylor's uh, part in that the main character in the driver's seat is called Lise, and Lise has to find someone to murder her. She sets out to find somebody to murder her. And I said to Mary, what did you think of Elizabeth Taylor's attempt? She said, well, the problem was she never looked like she wanted somebody to murder her. She looked as if she wanted a martini. <laughs> <laughs> so I took from that that she didn't enjoy it very much.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
2: Before we let you go, I would Love you to just tell everyone briefly about the re-release of her novels because I think it's a wonderful project and you're more than halfway through.
1: Yeah, uh, well, we're uh, Polygon, my publisher, uh, managed last year to secure some funding to republish all of Muriel's novels, um, uh, all 22 of them, nine pounds ninety nine each, with the uh, new bespoke introductions from fantastic writers um all over the globe uh, sandy mccall smith ian rankin ali smith jackie kay you name it fantastic writers uh, all over um and uh i think we've published about 12 or 14 of them now all 22 will be published by the end of this year and as i was saying to michael earlier the first person to buy or subscribe to complete set was um Nicholas Sturgeon, so there is some hope out there for us from our politicians. As I, um, I'm sure your Prime Minister is doing the same for New Zealand fiction. And,
2: yeah, no, well, well, I'm Australian. I'm envying their yeah. Prime Minister every day. It's kind uh, of, yeah. Send so her over; she can she can take care of us as
1: well. Yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Who is in charge of Australia? Is anybody in charge of oh. Australia? Come on. <laughs>
2: Look. It's me, but i put my out-of-office... Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it's yeah. better that way. I, I <laughs> need to think what my inbox is going to look like <laughs> when I get home. Yeah. We are out of time, sadly, but I cannot say strongly enough how much Alan Taylor's extraordinary book is not just a tribute to uh, one of the great writers in the English language, but it's also a love story to a friend that he clearly... Uh, misses a great deal. I cannot recommend it highly enough. You should go out and buy a copy and ask him to sign it. But please join me in thanking the remarkable Alan Taylor. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. Thank
2: you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.